Grace-filled good morning. Grace-filled good morning to everyone. You know, it's always interesting because today the world celebrates Father's Day. And um, it's always interesting because for us, what a fellowship we have to be able to come here today and glorify the real Father of us all. Amen? Amen. Today's scripture is coming to us from Mark, the 15th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Again, it's Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. This is the word of the Lord, and the Lord, the word of the Lord is blessed. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be gathered together with you all. Um, as uh, Pastor John uh, has said before, it really is the kind of the highlight of my week. I, I really get excited to come and gather together with you all to be able to worship together. Uh, Jeff moved. That messes me up. Um, so I think I've told some of you before, I, I pray when I'm praying throughout the week, uh, for you guys, I, I always, I, I generally know where your faces are, so I, I go back through the room and I'm praying for people, so Mock, you're messing me up, my friend. <laughs> it's not your assigned seat. Um, also, there is an Alistair Begg fan in the house today. Unfortunately, I'm not he, but uh, I might try to say something in a Scottish way once or twice, all right? Okay. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. If you would, let's, let's pray together. Great God, we thank you for the blessing of family, uh, being able to join together and just be worshipful, God, to put all of the busyness of our week aside for these few moments and to open your word and be blessed by it. It doesn't return void. So God, I pray that we come expectant to hear from you in your word, God, that we would just be encouraged by your sovereignty this morning to see that Jesus' faith was perfect in your word and ours rests on your word as well. So God, I pray for myself as we open these passages. I pray for us as a body that we would see you, that we would be encouraged, that we would be blessed. And God, if there would be anyone here who's not yet a believer, that maybe for the first time they see conviction in their spirit. They see a, a gulf between themselves and you, which is only normal. 
And then they see that the man Christ Jesus came just for that purpose and that they be made one with you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see this morning in Christ a trusting and transcendent king. Interesting because, you know, you think about the birth of a king. I I certainly don't expect that he's going to be birthed in a trough in the backside of a hotel with the animals. But a true king doesn't need all of the regalia. That's for faux kings. Jesus is a true king, not in the sense that the Jews, as we'll see in a minute here, have presented him to this Gentile court, but a king nonetheless. And a king who trusts his father's perfect will for this moment. And this is the key point in this passage, is the trust that Jesus has in his father. I think often as we study the passion of Christ and as we we come to see this process by which Jesus was tried, often where we go is to just the lack of transparency, the lack of fairness, the kangaroo court nature of the proceedings that Jesus was tried under. And all of those things are certainly true. But what jumps off the page to me is how much Jesus trusts his father with this moment. And then I think about my own flawed trust in God. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's really encouraging when I come out of a time of trial or a specific trial and I go, oh my gosh, I made it. By the grace of God, I, I never would do that for myself. It's like giving gifts. You know, you get together on Christmas morning. I do tutorial videos if you're on Facebook right before Christmas time. A lot of times just to help the dads know how to wrap gifts. Okay, But we're not wrapping gifts and telling somebody what's inside, unless you're in, in my family, in which case, if you're anywhere near Lisa McCollum, don't tell her what you're wrapping because she'll say it to the person you're giving it to. She can't help it. Um, I remember one time my wife got something and she said, oh, that's going to go great with the purse we're giving you. So we always hold that over her head. We wrap gifts to obscure what's inside. And then we enjoy as the person uncovers it and sees what's in there. In fact, I, I was just given a gift by my daughter we came in here, but I wasn't able to open it because she duct taped the paper. I said, sweetie, I don't know how I'm supposed to open this. She said, you just open it. So We'll get that figured out. Trials are like that, though, right? God knows what's inside. He's the gift giver. It's you who's going to be surprised. And sometimes you're surprised because you survived the trial. And I have shared with you before, um, I was at a Bible study one time in New Mexico at a, at a friend's place. And I heard a shatter and we went outside and somebody had smashed the window of my truck. And I was, a rel- I would say, a relatively new believer at that point. And I remember being excited because I, didn't, I wasn't angry. I, the old man would have been very upset by what had just happened. And I was absolutely excited because of how angry I wasn't in this moment. Have you ever experienced that kind of thing before when you realize this is God in me, this is not me in me? In fact, that's evidence that I'm gone and the Lord has moved in. And so we have a great example of that in Christ, in this perfect trust that he has in his Father. And something that we'll see is that that deep-rooted trust in God bears fruit in a kind of a timeless behavior. 
Jesus' behavior wasn't time-bound. If it was time-bound, it would have fought for itself. Jesus would have stood up for himself. We don't really see that. We don't see Jesus being too concerned with being found innocent or guilty. He trusts God in this scenario. In fact, if you look back to Mark 10, and we'll do that in a bit, he already knew exactly what was going to happen. There's no question in Jesus' mind where he was going. He already knew. Jesus didn't take desperate attempts to prove himself innocent. In fact, what we see is Jesus is in control. How many times did Jesus say, hey, it's not the time yet. It's not the hour yet. You see, Jesus is in control of all of these things, even when they came to get him in the garden. Our friend cuts off someone's ear. He's like, come on, don't do that. Puts it back on. ensures the escape of his disciples who are going to betray him. He obscured where they were going to take the Passover so that he could take the Passover together with the, with the disciples. He obscured that by sending them into a town and saying, hey, there's going to be someone with a jug, just follow them. And they get to the house, tell them the Lord needs this place and it'll be set up. This is the Jesus in John thirteen eighteen who said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus knew everything that was going on around him. Jesus wasn't surprised by what was happening. In fact, if you look, I referenced earlier Mark 10, uh, 33. I guess 10 is left of 13, sorry. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be deceived over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. It's kind of haunting to look at Mark 10.33 up against what... Brother William just read to us from Mark 15, 1 through 5. It is occurring exactly as Jesus said it would occur. Um, I've shared with some of you before, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a missionary now in, I think we say, South Asia. And, and he said something like, that makes God more robustly sovereign. And I said to my friend, that sounds incredible, but it means nothing. How would somebody be more sovereign? That's a misunderstanding of sovereignty. Sovereignty is complete. It's complete and total. God cannot be more robustly sovereign. You can sell a book with that sentence in there. You can make that be the tagline and people will buy it and you'll sound smart. But more sovereign means nothing. What we're seeing is complete and total sovereignty. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is the trusting, transcendent king. So if we look at the first verse from our passages today of Mark chapter 15, it says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, Mark, who 
has spent so much time describing Jesus' interactions. It's, it's funny because we talk about the Gospel of Mark. We said he talks immediately, immediately. He talks about how quickly things are going to occur. And his, his Gospel moves at such a fast pace. And then we get to these, these, this period of time leading up to Jesus is being turned over, and it's almost like time slows down. It's almost like that dream, if you've ever had it, where you have to defend your family or fight for some reason, and your arms don't move very quickly. Or if you're like me, you're running from danger, and your legs don't move very quickly. I don't fight danger. I run from it. It's like at the beach, right? I don't have to be the fastest person in the water. I just can't be the slowest. I only swim near children. (laughs) Mark really made sure that we saw Jesus' precious interaction with his disciples. And if you, if you think about what's going to happen, Jesus is turning his church over to these men. This will be the church. This will be how God shares his good news with all of the world. To men who are about to deny him. Little girl comes up. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? No, I wasn't with Jesus. All the while, the rooster crows. These are the men to who God is going to turn over his church. Jesus is going to ascend. I would be terrified if I was handing the keys to all that over to me, John Nicholas, and his long Starbucks conversations. As soon as it was morning. Remember, we were in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. He asks his disciples to stay up. They don't. He reminds them, stay up. They don't. He reminds them, stay up. They don't. Jesus leaves prepared. They leave unprepared. Over the night, they've given him a kind of a a trial. And and, uh, Pastor John did a a great job of, of talking through the the Sanhedrin, whether it's the 23 or the 70 or the 71, and the council and the laws and rules that they should have been following but were not. They held the trials at night. So they, they're so hasty, they take Jesus from the garden, they bring him straight to a trial, a kangaroo court, and find him guilty. Surprise. And now, where we pick up today, it's now morning. It's now time for a second trial, if you will, or it's time for them to draw a conclusion so that they can pass him over because they already know what they want. They want to kill Jesus. So they're going to turn him over to the Romans and have them do the dirty work for them. Plus, they're pretty good at it. I really enjoyed Pastor John walking through last week just the desire of God to see his people dealt with justly, and frankly, to see justice in general. Um, The Israelites would have been a people taking from a, a very unjust situation, Egyptian slavery. Have you ever seen the movie The Night at the Museum? Um, it's, it's Our family loves watching that movie, and there, there's a scene in there where um, uh, the night guard... Uh, goes to see the 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 Akmun Ra, the king of Akmun Ra, the father of of the the guy, and uh, 
and the night guard introduces himself and he says he's Jewish. And the, the Egyptian the Egyptian guy says, oh yeah, well, I used to have Jewish people, great people. We really enjoyed your singing. And, and the night guard said, we didn't enjoy that time, right? <laughs> it was rough. And so God took his people from this situation, um, led them by a, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of smoke by day, led them away from the Egyptian army, drowned the Egyptian army, allowed his people to pass through on dry land, and then sent them into a world now to, to be a beacon. The world was supposed to see the way that they lived completely differently, and God gave them a wonderful system of justice. We need that in a broken world, unfortunately, that all of creation just groans, right? And you think, ah, is sin real? And it, it, you really, all you have to do if you want to know if sin is real, just go home, turn on the news, and watch it. Why are we like this? Right? And, and that's easy because you, you hear about all the awful atrocities that happen, uh, crimes against children, which I'll never understand. Praise God, I don't understand that. Um, theft. Um, people, if you leave your, your vehicle on the street, either the tow truck company or people will steal the catalytic converters off of your truck, costing you $1,300 to uh, replace them and $500 to get it back after the city puts a ticket on it and six minutes later tows it. It's a broken world. And so we need justice. And so God gave a system that was supposed to not show partiality, not be hidden away, not already understand someone is guilty and then run them through the process. God put together a system of justice, and our own justice system attempts to echo that same system. You see blind lady liberty, right? Holding the scales. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand here with you. And so that same structure now is pulled forward to the Jews living in Rome, and it's designed to protect the innocent. It's intended, in fact, to make them be differentiated among a watching world. I think we forget that sometimes as Christians, too. Our lives are supposed to look different. It's supposed to be salt and light. People are supposed to look on our lives and say, that's different, that's great. What is, what is different about them? Let me go understand that. And a part of our attendance in a local church is about that focal worship. I set things aside for my life. I set this time aside. I go gather with other people and we sing and that's strange, and it's supposed to be strange. But people see that pattern of our life, and they're curious about that. Why do we want to gather? Why is this the highlight of our week? And so the question for us has to be, is this the highlight of our week? Do I gather? When I'm talking about things that I'm interested in, is it Philadelphia Eagles? Is it the Pittsburgh Steelers? If you pick badly, what, do we talk about church? Do we talk about the Lord? Do we talk about Scripture? Or am I more excited about football? or whatever your thing is, baseball or stamp collecting. And so they had this graceful fairness about the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 or 71 members. Three different categories. You have the high priests, the elders, and the scribes that make up this group of people who are supposed to be able to pass forward fair judgment. And they had a, a power over the region. You see it when Paul is charged to go get the Christians, right? He has a letter 
takes it with him. Acts chapter 9, verse 2 says that he left with letters from the synagogue to go to Damascus. And if he found people following the way, men or women, he could bring them bound to Jerusalem. Under what authority? The Sanhedrin. Acts 22.5 As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem and punished. So Paul, armed up by the Sanhedrin, heads onto the road, Damascus, through what we would say is Syria now. Hard to get there. I've tried. And this is where he encounters Christ. Such an amazing encounter, such an amazing salvation. I always, I'm so bummed out when I hear people who have, for whatever reason, just for their, for their own sinfulness or the sinfulness of, of others, um, I heard a young man one time say, you know, I'm just I'm not comfortable coming to church yet because everybody there has it so worked out. And I'm like, you don't know these people. <laughs> you don't know me. Um, nobody has anything worked out, pal. That's why we're here. Okay? There's a whole book about what we don't have worked out. Um, and praise the Lord, he is grace and mercy filled. Uh, no, nobody's here judging and pointing out problems and issues. Rather, we want to be merciful towards one another, prayerful, praying for one another, pointing each other back to a path of righteousness and judgment when we need it. Sometimes I need you to keep me accountable, right? Sometimes I need you to say, John, you're being a jerk. Jesus isn't like that. You are. And that's grace. So we've got this Sanhedrin that's all designed to deliver a fair system of justice and transparency. It's incredible, actually, when you read in the scriptures about how, or you read Josephus about how this all worked. It is incredible how fair it is and how advanced, frankly, it was. Um, You'd have, you have Sanhedrin of 23, which are like local structures for towns, but when you're at the, in, in, in town, you've got the fuller group of 70 or 71. What you would have is people sitting in a semicircle with a clerk at either end, keeping notes, being a scribe. So you've got this semicircle of people that are the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And then there's an order of things. The defense would be heard first. It's maybe our concept of innocent before proven guilty. So you first hear the defense, and anyone who speaks in defense can't then also speak against the person being tried. Can't flip-flop. You're going to be on one side or the other. This isn't like American politics, right? This isn't like the Senate or Congress. You don't get to be on both sides of the issue. And you also don't get to abstain from voting. You don't get to be not present. The one being tried would stand kind of facing this semicircle, and then on the back side of that would be the disciples who are there learning, people that are disciples of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the high priests. They're there in the back. So now you've got this full circle. The person being tried is standing facing you know, the, the accusers or the judges. And it's all recorded. No flip-flopping, no indecisiveness. And then when they would vote, it would be the youngest would stand, and vote first, and they would continue that way in age order. So John Nicholas would be last in this example. 
And so if you just, you just think about that, right? Maybe you ever, like in a work environment, if you've ever been in a work environment where you, where you work at the office and you're one of the older people in the office or you have one of the stronger voices, you probably know that you can get whatever way you want at the office, right? You can influence the younger people. Um, it's just like, uh, generally speaking, companies, if you have some kind of a policy that you go out to eat, um, if the most senior person has to pay, right? And, and that makes sense, but part of that is because that person's going to approve the expense. So you don't want them shoving it on someone else, and then they get to sneak the expense through. So the same thing here, when they're voting, it's the youngest first. They can't be dissuaded by what the older people are doing. This is all about fairness. Great lengths gone to make this fair. And they crush it. They grab Jesus in the middle of the night. They have torches and they have weapons. And they go and they grab him like he's some kind of a robber. And they drag him back and they try him. What happened to daytime trials? What happened to the semicircle? What happened to the court reporter on either end so everybody knew what happened? What happened to voting from the youngest to the oldest? What happened to not being able to be defense and offense? What happened to the fair trial for Jesus? And so we get frustrated for Jesus because this is completely unfair, but Jesus doesn't fight it because he's not of this world. He's not so concerned about it. And I can almost imagine Jesus sitting through all of this, knowing the hearts of these people. Maybe actively, think about this, the time frame on this just messes with me. I love this, this time frame while Jesus is uh, living his life in the whole... All of everything is transitioning. So there could be people who are hurting him, who are mocking him, who are also going to be believers, who will also be redeemed by what's occurring. Because God, through the willing hearts of people, is exacting his justice against sin. And Jesus doesn't fight against it. And so the reason I say all that is because Mark's gospel moves so quickly. If our legs were stuck in quicksand, they're out and we're free. We're burning. There's a lot that Mark isn't going to cover. So it's important to read the rest of the gospel picture of what happened during this trial with Jesus because Mark doesn't tell the whole thing, right? It's, um, I don't know how many of us in here are like um, part of like kind of high society or really into culture, but it's like the movie My Cousin Vinny, right? By the time you hear everyone's testimony, you get the timeline of how long it takes to eat grits and you see about the posi traction rear end of the Pontiac, because of all of those little elements of the story, it all comes together and you understand exactly what happened. And the Gospels are similar. <laughs> I was going to say the same, but they're similar. They're of a higher type and quality, but similar. Because when you read the whole story of the Gospels, you get the full picture and you get all of God's counsel on the issue. This was the structure, but they didn't follow it because they'd already decided what they wanted to do. Mark starts off by saying, as soon as it was morning. This is their, their hasty approach. They're shoving this whole thing through. They're making sure this happens quickly because they want to kill Jesus. This is what they've already decided this. How many times do they say that? How many times do you just read it plainly in Scripture that that's what they want to do? No voting in age order. None of this is happening. They're just pushing it through. Here's the terrifying part. How many among them do you think knew that they had perverted justice for evil? Because that's exactly what they did. 
They perverted justice. They used a system that was supposed to be about God's justice. It was supposed to even demonstrate God's fair, just nature to a watching world. And they used the structure inappropriately. It's like there's a a book called Scripture Twisting. Um, They used that structure to do whatever they wanted to do. But how many of them, if you did like a man-on-the-street interview and you asked them, hey, what happened back there? Even in, the heart, in their heart of hearts, when they're laying in bed alone at night, could think what we just did wasn't right. It is amazing what we convince ourselves of. We can convince ourselves of anything. Um, that's why you can have SS guards, Nazi SS guards. Somebody told them it was right. Somebody in an authority a figure of authority, a figure of power, and then you're in this environment, it's hard to buck against what everyone else is doing and stand up for what's actually right. It's difficult to do that. And so when we read things like this, when we look at this story, it's so easy to put ourselves in the position of Christ. It's so hard to put ourselves in the position of those doing violence against Christ. And sometimes I think we need to consider ourselves in that way, say, not what would I have done in this situation or, 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 or should this have been handled differently, but what about my life today? What are the areas in my life in which maybe I'm seeing things to my benefit, but not according to God's justice and mercy? Because if you'd gone to these folks in the same way with the same kinds of questions, they probably would have had a hard time with introspection. And when we see the fall in the garden, when everything got confusing, right? I mean, Adam literally tried to hide from God. And God comes into the garden and says to Adam, Adam, where are you? He was, God was not confused as to Adam's location. Adam didn't have a sweet spot in the garden behind a rock back there. You know, his whole, you know how like, you, you play uh, hide and seek with little kids and you can always find them by being quiet? Because you can hear that breathing. <gasps> God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Sin just entered the world. God didn't even have to pronounce the judgment on sin. It had just taken over. That Adam stepped outside, Eve stepped outside of God's protection. The enemy snuck into the garden and said, did God really say? The enemy had Adam question God's motive. That's what happened. That's what the fall was questioning God's word. And so when we become saved by faith, we reverse what happened in the garden. We, by faith, trust God's promises. It's bought and sealed and delivered through the blood of Christ, but we're turning from trusting ourselves to trusting God, paid for by Christ. And so it can feel, I think, scary sometimes to consider areas that you may not be hitting the mark, right? Where you may not be well aligned to God's character. But know this, for the Christian, know this. You're redeemed by Christ. Jesus said, none of these that the Father has given me will escape my grip. You're not holding on to like Jesus' finger. He has you in his hand. So when you consider 
yourself before him, when you pray to God, you can say, God, what, what expose to me those areas, God, where I am still far from you. And that revelation doesn't separate you from the love of God in Christ. It just allows you to be more and more transformed into his image, which is great. That's what we're supposed to be. As believers, we, we, we participate in something called progressive sanctification. We become like him more and more and more by degrees over time. And so that's very normal. And so that should be a part of our approach to God. Right? We can excitedly come to God and say, God, what are the areas where, where I'm, I'm falling short still? And so we can look around at the world around us and look for areas possibly where we're falling short. Maybe we see it still. People lusting after power, lusting after money, rather than after God. And even being willing to accept ungodly structures in the name of God, in the name of justice, while really they're lusting for power. Because rarely does the Christian ever step out and say, I'm here for power and money. It's always about God. You can still see it in denominations today. People lusting after power, position, authority. We can still see it in the hearts of men today. But those things are easy. What about ourselves? Are we willing to be introspective? Are we willing to answer the question, where are you? And so that's the motive inside of these people who are trying Jesus so quickly. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests consulted with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away, delivering him over to Pilate. The chief priests held a consultation. Um, really, they wrote up a statement. They, they wrote up a statement on Jesus that they were now going to hand over. They passed a resolution. Maybe they wrote resolution 1 and 2 and 3 and 8 and number 9, and they picked number 9 and they brought resolution 9. They'd run him through a night court, and now in the wee hours of the morning, maybe 5 a.m., write this decree, and they send him bound like a criminal to Rome for the death penalty. And remember, read back in time, Mark chapter 10, verse 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus knows all of this will happen, but he trusts God with the outcome. His silence or his lack of need to defend himself is evidence that he is the transcendent king. Verse 2. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Again, Mark is very brief here. Uh, the, several of the other Gospels have a, a lot more background, a fuller account of this. And in fact, when we read this quickly, um, it can actually sound like Jesus is kind of escaping really answering the question, right? You have said so. 
But this is, would be a common way of affirming the, tr- affirming the truth of what was just said. He's not being divisive. We just kind of miss it in translation a little bit, right? Like, uh, we, we do this in English all the time. There's little phrases that are weird. I remember, um, some of you are old enough to remember a little company called BMG. Remember that? You give them a penny and they'd send you 7,000 tapes and then they'd charge you a million dollars a week later. Um, the first tape that I bought from BMG was Michael Jackson Thriller. Um, listened to it so much, the tape was like warped and would play weird. But, you know, then I would talk to my mom and I would say that something was bad and she'd be like, wait, like bad, bad or Michael Jackson bad? It's how language is, right? My friend Josh says, say less. He doesn't really want me to stop talking. He just means something by that. I don't know what it is because he's cooler than I am. But he means something, right? (laughs) So in the similar way, Jesus said, you have said so. He's affirming what Pilate said. He's not being wiggly. He's not getting out of this situation. He is affirming that he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. And this was the charge they brought because this was the charge that they would be able to, they thought, have him executed over. Because Pilate's job was to keep order. Right? He was to keep order and law and rule and keep the people paying taxes. Very important. And so if they could show that Jesus presented himself as a king, and they could show that Jesus told people not to pay their taxes, then they could have him tried as a criminal and executed. And that's exactly what they attempted well, successfully to do. And so again, if you look at John chapter 18, don't need to do it now, but you can write this down. John chapter 18, verses 20 through 37, you see the fuller account of what Mark briefly spoke about here. Verse 3 of Mark 15. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? So even the person trying him is like, Jesus, don't you care? They brought this litany of charges against you and you have no answer for these? Mark is brief, but Luke gives us a little window. Luke 23, verse 2. Gives us a window maybe into some of those charges. They began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ." A king. Was he really misleading the nation? He was teaching from the scriptures. Anytime you see Jesus, he goes to the synagogue and he teaches directly from the scrolls. And you know, you see all kinds of times people, their eyes are open to the scriptures. After his um, resurrection, before the ascension, he's walking along a road. I believe this occurs in the book of Mark. He's walking along the road, and he uh, encounters some people that are walking, and and he says, hey, what's going on? They said, well, haven't you heard? And he says, no, what's up? And so they continue walking, and he teaches them from the Scriptures, and they describe it later, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he taught us the Scriptures? Jesus wasn't political. He was biblical. Jesus was really not into whatever was happening politically. In fact, that was one of the big mistakes that they made. They thought 
Jesus is going to come and he's going to be this Messiah and he's going to restore Israel and we're going to have our right place in the nation. And this this is going to be Zion and we're going to be present now. We're going to be like the ruling class over all of these people and the world's finally going to recognize that our God is strong and the king is here. But they were confusing the future kingdom and new creation, new heaven, new earth. They said that he forbidden them to give tribute to Caesar. Now let me literally quote Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Doesn't sound like he's forbidding anyone to give tribute to Caesar. In fact, sent them on a fishing trip to get a coin for Caesar to pay their taxes. So again, strike two. And then saying he was king, that's true, but his kingship wasn't earthly and he had no interest in it. In fact, there was a time that after feeding several people, he tried to walk back through town and they tried to capture him because they wanted to make him king. And this is one of the few times where you see Jesus leverage his fully God side as he just walks through the crowd and kind of disappears. Rome was actually not concerned with the kind of kingship that Jesus had. In fact, they mocked it. But again, this wasn't about finding the truth of the matter. This wasn't about leveraging God's justice and his system of finding truth. We read back in Isaiah 50, 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is foretelling in the past tense of future events. God's sovereignty is complete. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, we read this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' deep-rooted trust in God bears fruits of timeless behavior. Jesus behaved timelessly here because He trusted God. He trusted that God was delivering His plan of salvation through these events and circumstances. That's why He said, get behind me, Satan. Anyone who would try to stop Christ from going to the cross was standing in the way of God's plan. It wasn't plan B that, oh, they got Jesus, they put him on a cross and they killed him, so I better find a way to deliver salvation through that. This was always the plan. From Genesis through Revelation, nothing ever changed. Verse 5 of Mark 15 but Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. 
Pilate was amazed. He was Tommaso. This is the, the same word that was used to describe the crowd who wondered when they saw a mute speak who Jesus healed. In fact, Jesus himself was described as being amazed this powerfully once. It was when he saw the faith of the centurion up against all of Israel, and he was amazed. Matthew 8, 8 through 10. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You know what he was talking about was faith. Trusting faith. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who follow him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. With that same gravity of surprise, Pilate is just blown away to the point of confusion here. Jesus, why would you not try to defend yourself against this? It's hard to understand such a timeless vision. Jesus was bringing about the salvation of the world through these events. In fact, his silence reveals him as a trusting, transcendent king up against Peter, who denied him in front of men, Judas, who sold him for the praise of men and money, Pilate, who was fearful of the crowd, but through it all, Jesus was the trusting and transcendent king. It makes me think of Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Crazy story. In the end of this story, We read, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil against me. Now, I'm an older brother, not a younger brother, so I've never been beaten up or picked on by anyone. But I had a younger brother, and he would understand this. You've got someone who was taken out into a field, thrown in a hole, sold to robbers, put in prison, saying all of those things, older brothers, all of those things that happened to me, God meant them for good. He was in a position where he could have squashed them in this moment. And he takes a perspective of how God delivered salvation through his own personal suffering. He forgave them. This is a picture of Christ. This is a type of Christ. This is exactly what we see in Christ. Bringing about salvation through his own personal suffering for the benefit of others. Do you ever think about that? It's so hard to understand the gravity of what Jesus did on your behalf. If you are a believer, for you Personally, as an individual, your sins, great and small, though it's. He died for that, for you. 
It's so important that we think about that personally. It's not a general salvation that's kind of available to anybody who would get smart enough to see it. It's of grace, lest you could boast. What if you were smart enough to understand the gift of salvation? You could boast in that. By his grace, God enabled you to see the gospel. You trusted his son Christ, reversing the curse of the law, and became a believer all by the grace of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's a doctrine called concurrence. It's your 25-cent word of the week. You can sound smart if you say it. The doctrine of concurrence says that, that God justifies not only the ends, but also the means. Wrestle with that. Um, if I'm Joseph, I'm a little bummed out that some Egyptian slave traders happened by while I was in the field frustrating my brothers with my big mouth. Remember back to Mark 10.33. Jesus' sovereign foreknowledge over all that was going to happen to him came true. He turned him over. And so, what does that mean for me? That means for me, many times, I don't know what God is doing. I have no idea. You see that in the book of Job. If you ever read the book of Job, uh, we've done that here. Um, Read the book of Job. Do it again. Read chapters 1 and 2. But don't read the conference, if you will, between God and Satan. Read the book of Job without that. And now you have Job's perspective. He was the most upright man in the land of Oz. And then one day his servants came to him and said, Hey, everything you have is gone. Your kids are dead. Your livestock is gone. Your property is destroyed. That's all Job knows. He didn't know that there was this little conversation between the enemy that said, hey, he just worships you because you give him things, God. I don't know why things happen. And, and that, that takes a strong disposition to take. But I'm going to tell you what, if your faith is built on concurrence, that God does things the way that he sees fit and, and you need to trust it, when the kinds of things that will squash soft faith come along, by the grace of God, you can survive. What, what, what do I, pastorally, what do I say to someone whose child has just passed away? How do we deal with that? I mean, that, that's a horrible situation, right? I can't imagine that. By the grace of God, I cannot imagine that. But that happens. And a soft faith can't survive that. But a soft faith is also not a biblical faith. A strong faith and a strong biblical worldview recognizes that that is awful, but that God will somehow work that out for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. I can't describe it. I can't change the pain of that. But it's true. God is also the God of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. We also know he's the God of Isaiah 55.8. That's the answer to every question I'm stumped on. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's kind of a buck up moment. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I remember at an apologetics conference one time, I, I was remarking about the theologian who had just spoken, and I just didn't think he did a very good job with this topic. And I said, you know, I feel like you just tried to take on something that you really can't describe about God. And um, you ever talk about somebody and they're behind you, but you don't realize it, and everybody's kind of trying to show you with their cringe face? He was right behind me. And, and, and I had read Isaiah 55, 8, and he said, you're using that wrong. It's not about the loftiness of God. And in that moment, I realized his feelings were hurt because of the things I said when he didn't know I was there, but he's wrong. That is about the loftiness of God. He is great and holy. And so when we learn to trust God, we're free to have a transcendent faith in all circumstances after Jesus' own legacy. And by faith, we pick up the flame of Christ passed on through Paul, who said in Philippians 4.11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the question for us isn't about whether this was a fair trial. That's settled. This was not a fair trial. The question for us becomes, will we imitate Christ in transcendently trusting God in all things? And quickly, because John turned the clock, but I finally looked at my watch. I can't see it, so I apologize. Three things you can do this week. One, inspect your motives and your reactions. Two, inspect your intentions against God's goodness. And three, live as a people focused, not here on power and money, but to God's own purposes. I guess I'm saying be imitators of Christ and his deep-rooted trust in God that bears timeless behavior. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, for all that you do for us. Um, we thank you so much Lord Jesus, for your example on the cross, dying for those who would believe. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move on anyone who perhaps is not yet a believer this morning, who's feeling convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God, I pray that you would enable them to understand that the only prayer is God save me, and that you're faithful and just.